Welcome, welcome to Unapologetically Successful. Uh, we have today with us Neiland Youngblood, Dr. Neiland Youngblood. Uh, love the name. Uh, we have met quite a number of years ago. I would say it was about seven years ago at Hamptons mm -hmm. at a um, private family office conference. And um, it has been a fabulous experience. But since then, we stayed in touch. And here we are today in Sydney, where you are on your one of your business adventures. And um, we have the opportunity to interview you on the journey of how a person um, growing up in America with a family, educated family, but um, definitely not at the scale of success that you are today, has become who you are. You are one of the most influential people in America. You are very close to the um, what is happening within uh, the politicians. You were one of the biggest fundraiser for Obama um, campaign. Um, you were a doctor and you are currently running a, an investment firm and have a fund and are incredibly successful. So we would like to go into the journey of who you are, how all of this has happened, how you transition from you know, being the young doctor who you were with six gorgeous children to who you became today. Um, and, and really understand what was the key drivers in your life that made you become who you are today. I always say, what is the deep inside you <laughs> when you are sitting in a meeting and you are a little nervous or not sure, or maybe you're always sure, I don't know. But that's what we are after. Well, you know, again, I was, to your point, very blessed to have great parents uh, who um, were educated. I had four brothers, two sisters, but my parents both finished high school at 15, college at 19, both went to graduate school. Both of my grandparents finished college in the 1920s. My grandfather finished, one of my grandfathers finished medical school in 1930. And he went to medical school because his uncle, his father's brother, was a physician. And for African-Americans, particularly at that time, but people in general, Would have been you know, extraordinary um, right. uh, you know, uh, emphasis and success in terms of educating themselves and, and therefore uh, influencing you know, future generations about the importance of education. So that was certainly ingrained in me and my siblings. All of my uh, six siblings graduated from college. Most went to graduate school. And in my particular case, I had, you know, in addition to, um, uh, you know, extraordinary love uh, that was unconditional, I also had the opportunity to be, um, you know, have great experiences. So 14, I got to skip a, a year, part of a year of school and work in the Texas legislature, which exposed me to politics. And 16, having never been out of Texas, was an exchange student to Greece. And Greece was um, a transformative. I love that story about Greece. Yeah. Well, can we expand on that? Because I think this is something that a lot of people don't actually have the experience or the awareness that you had while you were in Greece. Yes. So I was, I was from a small town in Texas. Again, I got this opportunity to be an exchange student to Greece. And Greece at the time was under military dictatorship. And my friends were anarchists and communists and left and right, but generally were very antagonistic toward the United States. And I just said, what, what's going on? And apparently, supposedly, 
um, you know, the CIA had intervened and, uh, and influenced the overthrow of the government, supposedly, according to my friends. And so my friends were very anti-American, except that all my friends were trying to get a green card to get to America. And, and it so was there was that, that discourse. That, that disconnect. And it helped me to understand really the immigrant mentality. People come over to America, whether it's from the potato famines in Ireland or from a boat in Vietnam or from, you know, programs in Russia or Ukraine, and they get to the U.S., things are challenging, tough, but they have a frame of reference to say, yes, but it could be so much more challenging elsewhere. And for most blacks in America, they don't have that frame of reference because of slavery. And so it gave me insight into the immigrant mentality and the opportunities that were available in America that I had more or less taken for granted, but then recognized how So do you think it's a survival were. instinct? Well, I think it's, it's, it's more than a survival instinct. It really is recognizing that, you know, it's a land of opportunity and, and I should take full advantage I, of it. Because I, as you know, I mean, I do have an accent. Mm -hmm. um, and I grew up in a communist Czechoslovakia mm -hmm. and I escaped. And I actually completely agree with you mm -hmm. that Czechoslovakia, not as much, I guess, but still it was a communist country. But I see that in, I have to be careful, but the survival of the fittest yeah. is definitely in Russia mm -hmm. or in the what used to be the USSR mm -hmm. um, and or, or in China or in, you know, countries where you really had to work on surviving and getting through, which that will be my next <laughs> podcast space that I want to focus on is that looking at how people actually, what is the frame of reference and how that shapes their life. Mm -hmm. And a lot of successful people, there are percentages actually done on um, rich listers. Right. The percentage of people who come from really tough circumstances I mean, they have that in them. Yes. And, and again, I, for me, it was certainly, that was a component, but also was recognizing, you know, I was able to see a bigger world out there. And I wanted to, even though I was from a small town in Texas, even though my parents, while educated, were not financially well off, I got exposed to a larger world and said, you know You're what? You're still privileged. I, I'm, I'm privileged, but also I want more. I want more. I want to be able to be, you know, Bigger. at the center of what's going on in the world. And in order to do that, you know, so were you already a doctor by that stage? No, 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 no. I was, I, I was sixteen. I sixteen. Just, okay. I was sixteen. Again, I worked really hard. I did well in high school, and I went to Princeton. I went right. to Princeton University. I, I thought it was the best undergraduate institution in the country, and just I wanted to medicine. be able to be there and compete. And Princeton doesn't have a medical school, doesn't have a law school, doesn't have a business school. The focus is on the undergraduate education. And so I got there, recognized, wow, this is quite an academic challenge. And really, I'm very comfortable with my own limitations and began to interview upperclassmen to say, what would you do differently? What mistakes did you make? What didn't you... What did you do right? What did you do wrong? Did you have to do it all over again? And really, in the course of the first two weeks, develop a four-year plan of how to 
do my very best at the But that's very university. mature. Yeah, it, it, it was, but I felt a tremendous amount of responsibility. It was very expensive to be there. I, it, you know, I was representing my family, but not just my family, my community. I, I was representing a small town in Texas that I'd come from, and I felt like I was representing the larger black community in America. These opportunities What to was the attend. percentage of black children at that time? Well, certainly at the university, you know, quite small, relatively small yeah. compared to the You felt student. different? Well, I, I, look, I felt the university was, on the one hand, welcoming me, very much so. But it was a, a very different environment than I was used to. You had people from prep schools and all kinds of things that I, I just was never, I wasn't exposed to in the sense of, of, of kind of northeastern privileged classes. I, you know, I was born and raised in Texas, primarily in a small town. And so, you know, where football, American football was the number one industry. So this was a very <laughs> different environment that I was exposed to. And in doing so, I said, look, I'm new at this. Let me speak to people who've been here before, who've been here longer, and and better help me to kind of uh, navigate how to do my very best I guess there was actually nearly an advantage of being in that position because you had the opportunity to say, look, I'm new to this. Correct. Let me be the best that I can be. And that way you didn't need to... Because if you sometimes when you have been... If you would have been there from day dot, mm -hmm. it would have been really hard to sort of... Ask those questions, I right, guess. Right. So, no, I, I, I asked the questions. And, and again, I got great advice. For instance, most people, when they get to college, they screw up their first two years because girls and drinking and, you know, they're kind of getting acclimated. I, I recognize, I, you know, I can't screw up my first two years. You know, I also, so I would work, made sure that I'd work very, very hard those first two years. But also, I gave myself a, uh, uh, a carrot. Uh, during my junior year, I spent my junior year overseas in Europe. Spent a semester in Sweden, the University of Stockholm, semester in the UK at a small college in Oxford University, studying the British and Swedish healthcare systems, but really taking a whole year to travel for the most part and decide for myself whether I was going to go to medical school, whether I was going to law school, because those are really the only two professions that I'd even considered. And in the course of that year, I decided to go to medical school because. Again, I had in my grandfather a physician who I could look to and say, life's pretty good being a doctor. I, I didn't have those types of role models in the legal profession. Uh, and so I came back to, to Princeton uh, to finish up my senior year. As it happened, I got involved in politics. Um, this was the anti-apartheid movement and you know, joined the People's Front for the Liberation of South Africa. And we, you know, were quite a remarkable organization uh, in that we conducted a series of protests, I mean, around 60-plus days of, of demonstrations, uh, and then eventually did a sit-in, a boycott of a sit-in yeah. the, at the university. But to tell you the caliber of students who were participating, uh, our head of research uh, became Steve Jobs' personal attorney. Right. So, I mean, it was that level of very bright, very uh, sophisticated young men and women who were trying to change the world. And, and that hasn't 
that hasn't changed. We're, we're still so out there what is amazing, though, you are 16. You recognize the opportunity, mm -hmm. which is fabulous. And even when you said I was interviewing to um, sort of the more um, older students to find out what made them successful or what are the you know, keys to success, you were not chasing girls. You were not, you know, the drinking explorations or whatever, which I agree. And I was actually wondering, I do have a 16-year-old son, and he's a very good student. But um, there are children who just get taken in the path of girls, alcohol and whatever else. And then there is the other ones who are so focused. And it's interesting. That, so you had that in you from a very young age. Yeah. Do you I, think I, that your parents would have... Well, what I would say is this, that, you know, again, I'm now 18, I'm in college, I'm a little bit more mature, but I, again, I felt a tremendous responsibility. Yeah. My parents were working very hard to put me, my siblings through college. I couldn't... You didn't want to disappoint. I didn't want to disappoint. And I will say that disappointing my parents to this day is the single driving Driver. force in my Amazing. life that I, I don't want to disappoint my parents to this day. So I've never used a drug, not marijuana, You anything. still don't drink? I, I don't drink, you know, I, I, again, um, I, I don't smoke. Look, I just saw the sacrifices that they made and, you know, because of their love for me and all my siblings that I, I wanted to do well for them. And, okay. and in doing so, again, when I, when I finished Princeton, uh, post uh, my graduation, I, I came to medical school. Uh, right. Because, again, being a doctor uh, at the time, and, and still is a very secure, uh, well-regarded profession, so I came back to Texas, University of Texas, UT Southwestern, and spent four years there and, and really enjoyed it. And I thought I was going to be a... Um, a heart surgeon. That's what I thought I wanted to be because that was at that time being a heart surgeon was a very big deal. There were a number of very prominent heart surgeons at the time. Michael DeBakey being the most famous one at the time. But there, um, I called one of the Princeton alums and said, you know, Dr. Urschel, Dr. Hal Urschel was his name. Look, I'd like to be a heart surgeon like you. Can I come by and see you? He said, you absolutely can come by and see me. But so do you recommend for young people or people who are on their journey to set up their life is reach out. There is always going to be open door. People who have made it love to share their story and support and see the younger ones. A absolutely. Uh, mentors are enormously important and it's important to find mentors in your life that allow you to be able to kind of leapfrog in some sense. The, there's an expression that you can, you can learn knowledge from a book, but you can't learn wisdom. And wisdom takes life experiences and the like. But, but again, you can learn from people in terms of their experiences, but in order to really you know, create and retain wisdom, it has to be your own life experience. You have to have it inside you. you to, yes. So, look, I reached out to Dr. Urschel. He said, come by and see me anytime. But he said, look, you should talk to my roommate first, though. 
So I thought that was odd. I went down to Houston to meet his roommate. Uh, I was in Dallas. I went, you know, uh, went down to Houston to meet his roommate, who happened to be African American, happened to be black, and he was a heart surgeon, and he was the most extraordinary man I'd ever met. Um, he had gone to Howard at 15, Howard University at 15, transferred to Harvard University, finished summa cum laude, turned down the Rhodes Scholarship, went to Harvard Medical School, where he room with Dr. Urschel, uh, wasn't able to uh, train at the Brigham, which is where he wanted to because he was black, but went to Columbia, trained there, fellowship in the UK, but came back on the faculty at Harvard and was recruited down to Texas to be the first director of research at the Texas Heart Institute, which is doing more heart yep. surgeries than any place in the world. And I met this man and realized I'm not that good. I, I realized... Oh, I've I got goosebumps since you're saying yeah, that. I, I recognize what excellence was at the very highest level in that profession. And I said, if I can't be as good, if not better than him, I need to do something else. And, and no, I realized no matter how hard I worked, no matter what I did, I didn't have what this man had. What and was I it? Love Do you know? I, you know, look, some people are blessed with extraordinary skills and this, that, and the other. You, know, you just I didn't just, feel you had it I, in I, you. I, I realized seeing this man, and he became a wonderful friend and a, and a great person in my life and, and, a, and a real role model of, of what excellence is. And... I said, I need to do something else. I need to be as good, if not better, than this man, but in something else, because I, 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 can, I can never be as good as he is. So you could only be the second or the first. And so I said, let me, let me do something else. And, so what did you do then? So I, I came back. I, it, that was jarring for me, because I thought I was going to be a heart surgeon. And I wrote a proposal, and I got funding, and I went to the Middle East. I, I went to Israel. Yes. I went to Egypt, Hadassah Medical Centers. I went to Egypt, uh, Mustafa Kasserelaini, Jordan. And uh, to take some time off, I was doing research, research, but I was really <laughs> reflecting on myself, find myself. Yeah. I was really trying to find myself. And, and how old were you at that stage? You know, again, this was, so I was 23, 20, 23, okay. 23. And I, you know, I had an apartment on the Nile, you know, pyramids in the background, and I would go out to the desert, see these pyramids, and... And it's just an extraordinary experience to, to, to be out in the Sahara and see these pyramids. And, and it makes you feel so small. You know, 5,000 years before Christ, these were built. And, and I would reflect on who I was and what I was about. And, and more importantly, say to myself, when I'm taking my last breath, when I'm dying, what do I want to define me? Who is it That's I want to be? That's very unusual to think at the age of early 20s about the last breath. Most people don't think like that. What can I say? Again, I think part of it was the circumstances that I was in. I was, you know, in this, you know, looking at these extraordinary um, Pyramids. Historical. Exactly. And, and again, it, it, you know, what were these people doing back then? What was going on? What's Who, the, the legacy? The legacy. All they of left those the things. legacy with the pyramids. What am I going do, to do? You know, all of those things. And, and again, you know, it, 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 it caused in me to question and think about all kinds of things. Ultimately, though, 
you know, what is it, I, how I wanted to define myself. And in doing so, you know, making decisions to get me to that point when I'm taking that last breath as I move forward. So to reverse engineer, okay, if you want to be here, you know, take, when you're taking your last breath, if this is how you've defined yourself, where you want to be, then how do you reverse engineer to get to that point? So if I could, I actually had a, I died when I was 21. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but interestingly, I was not thinking that much about legacy, but um, you were thinking about your legacy at such a young age, yet you had a whole lifetime ahead of you. And life never goes in a straight line. So was it so that you wanted to build strong foundation? And that was the, or, or because you can't at the age of 21 define how you're going to be dying by the time you're 95. Not well, that I'm suggesting well, that that's well, when you're going but, to die. But, but what you can, you can define what you stand for. Yes. You can define, you know, the pillars of, you know, your moral authority. You can define, you know, the things that are important in your life, be it family, be it, you know, you know, a spiritual, you know, base, be it a work ethic. There are things that you can, you can define. And that's what helped me to kind of ground me in the decisions that I made moving forward. So after that, for instance, being there, I recognized I wasn't going to do heart surgery anymore. So what was I going to do? Mm -hmm. And I had, you know, all these, was it radiology? Is it dermatology? Is it general surgery? Is it, and I made a decision to do emergency medicine. Emergency medicine, which was a relatively new, unknown subspecialty in medicine at the time. And I, I did it for a few reasons. One, it was a lot of fun. You know, you're taking, power, taking care of people acutely ill or injured. And you have to make very quick decisions. Um, to I'm try sure to, you wanted to fly yeah. the helicopter. Yeah. And so, <laughs> so, yeah, so, you know, immediate gratification. You didn't work more than 15 days out of the month, usually. So you had off 15 days out of the month, not more than three days in a row because it's intense. And I also felt like it created optionality for me. I didn't have to worry about an office practice. You know, measuring somebody's blood pressure every six months or three, you know, essentially, I take care of people and then I leave. And that it's okay. not this continuing. So thing. how long did but, you do that for? Well, I was going to say that the other thing is, it, as I mentioned, if I, it created optionality because if I ever left medicine, I could just walk out the door. I didn't have to worry about an office practice. And so... I trained in surgery in New York, did my residence in emergency medicine in Atlanta, and practiced for 12 years emergency medicine okay. in Texas, in Dallas, and enjoyed it tremendously. Uh, but I got involved in politics because... So can we go now into... Because you are a doctor, you're still a medical doctor, mm -hmm. but you are much more involved in politics than in the financial services or in, in the... Some can call it Wall Street, some can call it in funds management. Um, to transition from purely medical profession, you very quickly moved into becoming an, and actually taking a position on quite substantial boards 
that then shaped your life to become who you are. And then you were truly like, not just sort of organizing some demonstrations, you were part of it. You were there next to the presidents and really involved heavily in the discussions and tax reforms and shaping the future of the country. Yeah. Well, again, the idea to be involved in politics really emanated from the fact that I was, I was practicing medicine, life was good, and I wanted to give back. I wanted to contribute to, you know, the larger, um, you know, conversation that was going on in, in the country at multiple different levels. And as a 14-year-old, I'd been involved in politics and worked in the legislature. Yeah. And what I had observed was that while women and people of color in America had been involved in politics, it was more grassroots politics. And what I had seen as a 14-year-old was that money was the driver of politics. And if you had the money, the, the outcomes seemed to be much quicker and, and much more definitive well, in terms of Well, money is kind of power, and yeah. money is freedom. And, and, and so I said to some of my friends, Bill Bradley, who was a senator mm. running for the Senate in New Jersey, we should support this man because, you know, he'd gone to Princeton, Rhodes Scholar. I mean, I didn't know him, but Princeton, yeah. Rhodes Scholar, played in the NBA, someone who I admired. And I met him through an alumni organization. So I invited him to come down to Texas to raise money for him. And my friends and I joined together and pooled our resources and uh, was very successful. Uh, we became you know, great friends. He's godfather of one of my kids. And then what I didn't understand is once you raise money from one politician, other politicians follow. So I then got a call from Ann Richards, who was running for governor of Texas. And so ended up, you know, put the band back together, raised money for her. And she won the primary and then the general election. And she became governor. And then I got a call from a friend of mine who had contributed to the Bill Bradley events and the Ann Richards events out of Illinois. I said, look, this woman, Carol Mosey Braun, wants to run for the Senate, will you help her? So brought her down to Texas, raised money for her. She became U.S. Senator, uh, Carol Mosey Braun. And then I get a call from a gentleman named Ron Brown, the late Ron Brown, who was former Commerce Secretary. Um, uh, Ron said, look, we have this gentleman, Bill Clinton, who would be great if you could support. So again, contributed, raised money, and come to find out uh, that um, you know, Bill became uh, president, of course. And so uh, in doing so, it really put me at the epicenter of what was going on at the federal government in terms of the Clinton White House. Many of the people from Ron Brown, who became Secretary of yeah. Commerce, uh, you know, Henry Cisnero became Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. We had, uh, of course, uh, Senator Bill Bradley, who was a senator. Yeah. Uh, you know, I knew a lot of people within the administration, Ann Richards, of course, knew her and you know all of these people. And um, Bill Bradley said something very simple but very profound. He said, "Look, if the president of the United States walks in the room, what's your ask?" I said, "I don't, I don't understand." He said, "Don't be happy to just be in the room. Don't get consumed with the lights." You have camera. a purpose. You know, if you are in the same room as the president, you have a role to play. Yeah, exactly. And he said, "Look, they know what they want out of you, which is why you are being invited." and you should know what you want out of them. And so take advantage of it, be prepared. Uh, and that really resonated with me. 
uh, such that uh, when Ann Richards called me, she said, look, I'm governor, I'm going to put you on the board of medical examiners, which is dealing with the doctors. And I said, no, I want to be on the tax policy committee. She but said, you're a doctor. But I'm a doctor. She said, well, what, you don't understand. I'm, I'm appointing you to the most prestigious thing I can as an MD. This will be great. And I said, no, I want to be on the tax policy committee. And she said, why would you want to do that? I said, because the tax policy committee is composed of CEOs from around the state of Texas. And if it's important and that's enough for them, the money if it's important enough for them, it's important enough for me, and I want to be in that room. And she said, okay. And um, what happened to me was I was in the hospital one day, and the nurse handed me the phone. Some guy wanted to talk to me about taxes. And, you know, I got on the phone. I'm busy. I'm arrogant. I'm doctor. I'm saving lives. And he says, look, you don't know me. My name is Don Williams. I'm CEO of a company called Trammell Crow, real estate business. I'm on the tax policy committee. You're on the tax policy committee. Uh, there's another fellow by the name of Dan Cook with Goldman Sachs. He's on the tax policy committee. We should all just go together. And I said, well, sure. What American Airlines, flight, Southwest Airlines flight are you on? He said, I have my own jet. So just come fly with me. And I got on the jet and realized there's a whole other world out here. So I, I had, love this moment. I had no idea existed. And Can we elaborate on that? Because yeah, I think sure. this is really fabulous. So you're sitting on a private jet first time in your life and you go, I can do whatever I want to do. I will never own a private jet <laughs> the way I'm going. Right. What exactly was going in your head? Was the straightaway, this is the next steps that I need to take or how am I going to what was exit going, from this life to yeah, the private jet life? What was going on life? in my head was first off, how is it that I completely missed all of this in terms of my life experiences because I had well, not many people fly a private no, 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 no. <laughs> but I mean, just business in general. I, I know what you mean. I've been completely unexposed and didn't understand what investment banking was or what I, I didn't. I didn't know what the world of finance was about and had never been exposed. And so I was on the chat. I was talking to to Don Williams, who I I was still a friend and who I, I admired and respected, but I didn't see anything in him that I didn't see in myself, except I hadn't been exposed, and he had been. And so going back to when I was in Egypt, you know, I said, you know, you said at the end of your life when you're taking this last breath, you know, what do you want to be and how do you want to get, you know, this is one of those forks in the road. Yeah. So what are you going to do about it? And I said, I have to quit. I have to quit medicine because I have to pursue this because this is a bigger platform. This is a, uh, a way to have a bigger impact and to do well and do good. And so how do you get there, though? Yes. So how do you get there? Thank you for asking the yes. question. So, you know, I'm married, I have six kids, all in private schools, lots of obligations. Uh, I said I couldn't afford to go back in an MBA. I, I couldn't do that. I work on Wall Street. I, I, I couldn't do it. I said, I need to understand money. And because I was politically connected, I asked the governor to put me on the board of Texas Teachers, the pension fund. So I figured, let me, that's the largest pool of money in the state. And, uh, you know, it was tens of billions of dollars. Let me go there. Let me just at least get exposure. So I got appointed by then Governor Ann Richards, who appointed me, and then George W. Bush uh, became the governor, and I knew him as well, because I 
it was a friend, and so he confirmed it. So, um, and that exposure during those six years really helped me to understand public equities, fixed income, real estate, and ultimately alternative investments, private equity. And I said, that's really the You platform. appreciate, though, that most people, when they want to learn about finance, go as graduates or analysts into first small or medium firm, and then whereas you went from the top down. Correct. Which I guess must be coming from the experience of you understood politics and you looked at women and black people doing politics from the grassroots, mm -hmm. whereas where the power was. So you actually applied the same concept on this as well, haven't yes. you? Yep. And so really... Uh, so one does, uh, let's say, how does one now move or... Okay, once th there is a will, there is always a way and you just do fine. Okay, I just answered my own question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, and I, I will say that certainly Again, Texas Teachers was, was, a, was a tremendous platform. And then I recognized, look, to your point, earlier point, I needed great mentors who could advise me. Yeah. I needed um, credibility, I felt, uh, outside of medicine. And I needed a great team. And so m mentorship is really, really important. Having people who you can look up to, but also who can advise you. And, and as I read more and more about finance, there was a guy named Richard Rainwater in, in Texas, who was out of Fort Worth, Texas, uh, that was a legendary investor. He had, his biggest trade was he had bought some raw piece of land. He worked for a high net worth family called the Bass family. And uh, he had bought a raw piece of land in a place no one had ever heard of in Florida and aggregated it and sold it to the Walt Disney Company. It was in Orlando and it became Disney World. So it went from 20 million to 12 billion. Uh, and I saw this guy at a big event in Dallas. And I said, wow, that's Richard Rainwater. And I ran up to him and I'm, Mr. Rainwater, I want to be like you when I grow up. He said, come by and see me. And I went by and I saw him eventually and it, it changed my life. It, he brought me into his circle of friends and influences, people who worked for him. They showed me my first business plan. You know, he had me to go meet people in Seattle and Chicago and different New York. And it really made an extraordinary difference in my own self-confidence because I felt like if this man believes in me, believes in me, I should believe in myself. And he wouldn't be introducing me to his friends and peers if he didn't believe in me. So that gave me confidence. And then next was a guy That's named so David. That's so beautiful. Yeah, next was a guy named David Bonderman, who, interestingly enough, had come out of the Bass family as well, uh, successful in his own right, founded a firm called TPG. And David became a great mentor, great friend, like Richard. Uh, but also, David wrote a check, said, look, I'll invest with you. I'll give you, right. I'll, I'll invest with you. Um, and then much later, Michael Milken became a mentor, friend, investor as well. Who is ultra successful today. And, and um, I, um, also began serving on board cor corporate boards. And you talked about survival. Um, what I would say is, you know, necessity is the mother of invention, as the expression goes. Because Richard was asking me to meet people in Chicago and New York and different places, it was costing me a lot of money, you know, to be able to get a plane ticket and, 
you know, stay in a hotel. And I said, serving on corporate boards not only would give me credibility outside of medicine, but it would reduce my cost if I chose the right boards. And I said, if I could choose one board, the best board would be an airline. Because, because I'm flying around a lot. Because they let you fly for free if you serve on the board. Right. And so I didn't know anyone at American, but I really kind of wrote out. Again, you never know when opportunity presents itself. And, and so I, if the CEO of American Airlines walked in the room, what would I say? I, I didn't have an answer for that. And so I literally wrote out why I should be on the board of American Airlines, arguing with myself you know, back and forth, what would make sense, what wouldn't make sense. And so I happened to be at a Dallas Cowboy football game one day, older gentleman sitting next to me, and we get along really well, and, you know, we're going on great. And he said, look, I'd love to get you involved in this not-for-profit or that not-for-profit. or this. And I said, well, wait, time out. You seem to be really well-connected. What, wh who are you? What, what? And he said, <laughs> well, I was former CEO of the Resolution Trust Company. I was former CEO of Time Mirror. I was former... CEO, I was former U.S. Postmaster, I was former CEO of American Airlines. <laughs> like, Isn't that me? beautiful how the <laughs> universe always delivers? <laughs> and I said, if you think I'm so good, you should put me on the board of American Airlines. And I had this thing memorized in my head. And he was like, whoa, okay. You know what? I'm, I'm actually going to be out at American tomorrow. I'll, I'll, I'll look into it. I'll give you a call. <laughs> and so he called me the next day and said, look, American has three boards. Because I wasn't, all I knew was the airline. So American Access has three boards. They have the airline, they have Sabre, which is an information technology company. They also have an asset management company called um, AMR Investments, which right. became American Beacon. He said, I think you'd be perfect on that board. You know, invest the pension assets of yep. American Airlines along with outside third-party money. It's, you know, it's complementary to what you do in Texas Teachers and, uh, as, a, as a board member. And uh, I said, great, what's the compensation? And he said... Free first class travel anywhere in the world. American flies for you and your wife. I said, sign me up. And then the next board, of course, was hotels because they needed a place to stay. And again, Starwood Hotels, I, I was able to. So, make... really, what you're saying is, and this is what I'm hearing make up your mind, be clear on it. Yeah. Understand why in your, you are worthy of that role yeah. and what you can contribute. And the universe will then deliver the opportunity. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. But again, you have to be persistent. Oh, of course, and, yeah. and Because it doesn't necessarily happen overnight, though sometimes it does. And, and I was able to, to meet Barry Sternlich, a visionary uh, real estate um, entrepreneur. And Barry gave me the opportunity to serve on the board of Starwood Hotels. I mean, I, he was a young 36-year-old who had, you know, uh, was building a, an extraordinary uh, um, real estate portfolio. And... and he allowed me, uh, along with uh, uh, one of his uh, colleagues, a guy named Madison Gross, to, uh, to serve on the board of Starwood Hotels. Madison actually resigned from the board of Starwood Hotels so that I could take his place. And uh, again, uh, so I had the hotel hookup, and then you know I was a border, got on the board of Gap. I had six kids. I was board of Burger King. Was food, and then I started my firm with uh, a fellow Princetonian. Uh, gentleman by the name of uh, Bob Krantz. Bob had gone to Princeton, finished summa cum laude, number one in his class in economics, worked at uh, Goldman Sachs and, uh, after six years, and eventually, you know, we created the firm. We had a couple of other partners in the beginning, but uh, fortunately built it and, and have... Um, so how much money is currently? Well, currently we have uh, 
a couple billion dollars uh, in the uh, alternative investment space focused exclusively in healthcare. That's what yeah. we do. How do we improve patient outcomes? How do we lower the costs of healthcare for patients? How do we create greater access for patients? So a very patient-centric approach, but also incorporating what we call the social determinants of healthcare. Somebody may have high blood pressure, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, but what's your transportation, what's your housing, what's your you know, work environment, all those things contribute to one's underlying medical uh, condition. So what I like about your current funding and the investment as well is that it's nearly government-backed, mm -hmm. indirectly, but it mm -hmm. is. Can you describe that? Well, certainly if you look at the patients that we take care of, by and large, the majority in case of our uh, fund three, 85% are either on Medicaid, the poor, or Medicare, the elderly and urban and rural communities yeah. across the US. That's where the greatest disparities in healthcare are. But quite frankly, that's in reducing the cost, cost as well as improving the quality, you can also generate the best returns. Yes. So there's an alignment in terms of our ability to do well and do good at the same time. And so that has been enormously rewarding. And, and to your earlier point, you know, I try to balance that with, you know, the board services that I continue to, um, to serve on, but at the same time, you know, giving back uh, to the country um, in terms of some of the uh, um, organizations that I'm, I'm fortunate to be a part of advising. So I, I love that you you are in the you you have a fund that actually does a lot of good, mm -hmm. and yet creates enormous returns yeah. for investors. Yeah. It must be very satisfying. Coming back to the legacy and the pyramids, the points we now transfer a few years later. If you would be standing there today, you must be having a really good feeling of where you're heading, what you've done, and and the legacy that. Yes, no, no question about it. I think the, 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 the greatest legacy that I have is certainly my kids and, and my family, and that, you know, I have, you know, six kids, uh, five boys, one girl. No, five girls, one boy. Sorry about that. I get them mixed up. <laughs> Children, anyway, don't worry. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, but they've all, you know, done well in, in their own um, right and are grounded in a way that... Uh, I think represents the values that, um, you know, or values certainly that, you know, I have and, and my family has. And so I, you know, most proud of that. I certainly, you know, the firm we've built, uh, Ferro's Capital Group, uh, has, been, uh, has been a great deal of a reward, but also the ability to be able to, to serve uh, whether it's for-profit boards or, for that matter, not-for-profit boards, um, it's been you know tremendously rewarding uh, being involved in the Milken Institute, Michael Milken, and the work that he does um, both on the foundation side in terms of uh, Prostate Cancer Foundation, but also with regard to a number of initiatives that they're involved in, and also serving on behalf of the country. Uh, one of the mottos, the motto of Princeton University is, in the nation's service. And so being able to, to be involved, you know, with um, efforts to, um, 
you know, participate in, in, in different uh, boards and commissions, I think has been very rewarding. Now, it's astonishing. Where next? Where next? Um, where next is, you know, I'm certainly involved a lot internationally, you know, kind of on the global stage, and uh, uh, because, you know, I want to learn. I, I want to learn from, from people, and, uh, and so next for me is, we'll see. We'll, we'll see. Uh, cool. The best is yet to come, though. So, I'm so can I just, I thank you so much. This has been amazing. I just wanted to go back again to the presidents of the United States. I can't believe that we sort of talk oh. about them like mm -hmm. our friends. Mm -hmm. um, I thought you were the largest um, founder or, or supporter, I feel like, financial supporter, or you, you rallied financial support for uh, Obama. Mm -hmm. I was not the largest supporter for Obama, but I did contribute. I was part of his finance committee. I knew him when he was a state senator. I knew him when he was a U.S. senator, which I supported. I knew him when he was president and supported him as well. But again, Bill Clinton, you know, again, uh, uh, President Joe Biden certainly uh, have been very supportive of him as well. And uh, but having said that, I do have friends on both sides of the political aisle, from from you know Tim Scott and, and Senator Tim Scott in South Carolina, as well as others that I've I've been involved in. And uh, look, what I want to do is advance the country forward, and I think in advancing the country forward, you'll advance the world forward. And certainly I think that in uh, helping to um, improve the lives of the least of us, and that's especially the case in, 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 in people of color, particularly African-Americans, you improve the lot of, of all of us. And so that also is a, is, a, is a driving passion of mine, serving on the board of the Black uh, Economic Alliance where we're focused on you know, work wages and wealth within the black community is uh, enormously rewarding. So you will stay engaged and involved in politics. So where next? Where Tell next? us where, where is the world going? So we had um, COVID 2019 and 20. Right. America is now, um, I would say not only America, the world is now in certain level of recession, people mm -hmm. say. Mm -hmm. um, where do you see world going? Well, look, I'm, I'm an optimist by nature. I think that uh, certainly the resilience of the people of Ukraine has given me and I think the world hope with regard to being able to fight back against uh, oppressors. And so that gives me a, a good deal of, uh, of optimism. What people, what people need, what people thrive on, I believe, is hope. That gives them the, the energy to keep moving forward, to keep pushing. To keep, and, and what they have shown is um, an ability to resist, to innovate, to um, and, and it's not over, don't misunderstand me, but, you know, to, to win. And so, I, you know, I think that, that gives me hope and makes me proud. And, and certainly, I think that that can be applied across the board from peoples, many different peoples, 
but also circumstances and, and the like. And so... Um, so hope. So we'll finish with hope. Finish with hope. Absolutely. I'm mm -hmm. a very positive person, so I love mm -hmm. hope and happiness, joy. I always say that we yep. do need to start the day every single day with hope and yep. enjoy. Thank you so much. This has been fabulous. What a beautiful story. My pleasure, Suzanne. And um, thank you for inviting me. Thank you. Mm -hmm.